great to have visiting visitors with us, and we trust that God bless his word to us and to those who are joining to listen online as well. Our call to worship today comes from Psalm number 5. It comes from a psalm where David is lamenting his situation, and he is doing so as he is chased by his enemies. And as we come to think of the trial of the Lord Jesus, who is, of course, the son of David, these words are very apt. So here is our call to worship from verse 7 of Psalm number 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Here is a call to worship. We bow down toward the holy temple of God in the fear of his name. And we begin our worship by singing together from Psalm number 2 in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm number 2 at the beginning of the psalm. So page 200 of the psalm book. Psalm number 2 at the beginning of the psalm. And we're singing down to verse number 8. Why rage the heathen and vain things? Why do the people mind? Kings of the earth to set themselves and princes are combined to plot against the Lord and his anointed, saying thus, Let us asunder break their bands and cast their cords from us. From verse 1 to the verse marked 8 to God's praise.
Let's join together in prayer. Let's stand to pray. Eternal and most gracious God, we gather to worship your name, seeking to have that joy in our hearts, which comes from knowing that you're the one who's sitting on your throne. And no matter how much humankind may rage against you, no matter how much the authorities of this world stand in opposition to you, we are thankful that you continue to reign. And we are thankful that all of the activities that take place on the face of this earth today are bound within your permission that nothing takes place but what is in accordance with your decree. And we recognize how great a mystery that is. But we are thankful as we worship you together that you are the God who has a purpose and a plan for this creation and for the people of it. And we are thankful that you have the ability and the capability and the power to bring all of your plans, to bring them to pass. So the day will come when your people will be gathered with your Son, when they shall see him in all of his glory, when all that spoils will be left behind, and when the beauty of the perfection of the paradise of God will be experienced for the first time an experience that will continue throughout the endless ages of the eternity that lies before us. We do give thanks to you that you are such a great God. And we are thankful today that you see us here, that your eye is upon us, that you are the God who looks down, who does so not only to examine behaviour, actions and thoughts, but the God who looks down in your mercy and in your compassion to lift those who are in the dust and to raise them up and to put their feet upon the rock which is Jesus Christ, your Son. And today as we close our eyes and look up to you, we pray that you will look down upon us and that we may see the beauty of the revelation you have given to us, of all that there is in your heart, in the passion of your Son, and that joy will fill our hearts in the knowledge that you have made such a great and rich provision in the gospel of your free grace, and give us to find our peace and our rest today, and seeing your heart open to us and hearing the invitation of the gospel and in giving to us all together today to sense the brightness of the shining of the Son of God into our hearts and lives. Pray that for your people who have journeyed on down through many years in their faith in the shadow of your wing, Pray that today they may know something of 
the sunshine breaking through the clouds that may separate their vision of you as their God and Saviour. And pray that such hearts today will know the warmth of the shining of the brightness of your Son. And we pray for those who perhaps do not yet know you, that there will be a, a dawning of the day and a rising of the Son of God on them for the first time. Give them to know the warmth of your love also, and so that every heart before you here today will know true joy, will know true love, will know true peace, and will know anew what it is to be strengthened and to be encouraged in the worship of Almighty God and there to find not only a place where they sense they are at home, but a time where in that homeliness they understand your fatherly love and care. And so bless us, we pray, with your power and with your peace and with your presence as we gather to worship you. Remember every heart before you. Remember every home and every family. Remember all in the needs on this new morning, needs that are constantly changing, needs that arise suddenly, needs that come with their own stress and distress and pain and sorrow. We pray today for those who are unwell, that you will grant them to know where they are, that you are a great physician who lays your hand to give inner strength even in the midst of frailty and bodily weakness. We pray, O Lord, for healing. We pray for recovery. We pray for strength in days to come. We are mindful of many grieving around us. I knew even this morning in our neighbouring community and even in homes and families belonging to ourselves. Lord our God, we pray for comfort in the midst of grief. Comfort from the one who knows how to give through comfort, the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and who journeyed on through this world in the midst of its pains and its sorrows. May the love of God and Jesus Christ be their comfort at this time of sorrow and loss for them and for those in our wider communities and the different ways in which our community perhaps stand with sudden loss even in these past days. Have mercy would you ask and bless all who need you. Bless your word, whatever it is read and sung and preached today. We are thankful that it is the word of life. It is the very breath of God. And we pray that wherever it is read and preached and sung today, that it may come forth with that sense of life and power to all those who do hear to bring about newness and change and to cause our communities, our towns and our cities to be filled with a people filled with a sense of their need of you, of the fear of God, of the longing to bow down before you and of the longing to embrace and to receive your embrace and to know the joy of your salvation. Bless the world in which we live in all its pains and sorrows today also. Bless the gospel preached. Bless those who go out with her to every corner of the world. Bless those who suffer persecution because of their love for your name. And bless, O oh Lord, we pray anew 
the Ukraine and the peoples of it. Remember them before you. We pray that you will bring an end to the conflict and to that suffering. We pray that you'll have compassion on them. We pray that you will give strength to them, that inner strength that will enable them through trusting in you to triumph over their circumstances and to triumph over the enemy of conflict. We pray, O Lord, to bring about peace and to intervene and to give great wisdom to all those who are in leadership across the world so that they may be able to take whatever action will be successful in achieving that peace and not intervention that will be the means of spreading conflict. We pray you for wisdom and we pray for peace to be restored in our world, we ask. Remember us in mercy as we continue before you in this time of worship. Bless us together. Bless all those who are joining us, wherever they may be listening to your word, even now. We ask your blessing to be upon your word to us in our reading of it and in our study of it together. Help us, we pray. Hear us, we ask, and watch over us, having mercy upon us. For we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, boys, it's good to have you with us today, and uh, I hope there are boys and girls uh, watching or listening online at least. Uh, and uh, today our Bible story is coming from Matthew chapter 26, and there we're going to read and understand something of the trial of Jesus when he was tried by his enemies. Today I want us to think of springtime, and springtime is a special time of the year. It's a time that comes with great hope. We see hope in our gardens, we see hope in our crofts and in our fields, we see hope on the hills. And if we're shepherds of sheep, and I know some of you are, if you're shepherds of sheep, this time of year is a highlight. It is one of the best times of year if you're a shepherd who loves sheep, because of course at this time of year the sheep are all lambing. And there is great work done in preparing for the lambing, and scanning the sheep and knowing which ones have single lambs and twin lambs and maybe triplets. So all the preparation is done and all the feeding is done. And then comes the time of lambing. And the good shepherd, the cares for the sheep, will go out in the night and in the day to check on the sheep. To see single lambs, to see twin lambs and to see perhaps triplet lambs. And to stand on the croft or in the field and watch the lambs running about healthily in the field. It is a great time of joy. It's a great time of excitement. But the shepherd also knows that it can be a time of sorrow. And I spent a few days at the beginning of this week looking after sheep who were lambing, and it wasn't all great news. Some of it was bad news. And bad news because some lambs get sick, some lambs die, And some mother sheep get sick and die as well. But the good shepherd will do everything possible to try and make sure that the sick lamb will get better. The good shepherd will take the lamb to the vet, do whatever is necessary in order to help this lamb to recover. But at the end of the day, after having done everything, sometimes it is not enough and the lamb dies. And so it is a time of sadness. So the shepherd who loves his sheep will have joy because the sheep are lambing, but the joy will come with sorrow as well. 
And when you come to think of Jesus in the Bible, Jesus gives himself the name, not just the Son of Man, not just the Son of God, but the Good Shepherd. And Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, at this time of year, preparing to go to the cross on Calvary on Good Friday, at this time of year, Jesus was calling his disciples. He was calling them by their names. They were recognizing his voice. They were following him. They were like sheep following the shepherd. And when we read the Bible and teach the message of Jesus, that's what we see. Jesus is calling us to hear his voice and to follow him. And when we follow Jesus and put our trust in the Lord Jesus, Jesus has great joy. And Jesus himself tells us in the Bible that there is joy in heaven when somebody like you or like me put their trust in Jesus. The good shepherd has great joy in his sheep. But we know the good shepherd also had times of sorrow. And he had times of sorrow because he was finding sheep that had got lost, because he was finding sheep that had been hurt or were sick. But he also had great sorrow because as the best shepherd ever, he had to lay down his life for the sheep. No medicine could cure their sin. No medicine could make them better. The only thing that would make them better was that Jesus would give his life for the sheep. And that's what Jesus has done on Good Friday on the cross. He died for our sins. There was a great cost for him being the good shepherd. But that's not the only thing that makes him special. The other thing that makes Jesus a good shepherd special is that when we are sick, he always makes us better. When we get lost, he always finds us and he will never lose us again. And that's the beauty of, of all that Jesus is. He calls the sheep to come and follow him. And he tells us in the Bible that he will never lose any one of them. So the shepherd who loses a lamb has sorrow because the lamb has died. But the good shepherd doesn't know that sorrow because he never loses those for whom he has died and those who put their trust in his name and those who believe in him as their saviour. So remember today, the shepherd of the sheep loves the sheep. But remember the good shepherd. And remember that even when we do something wrong, he will make us better and he will never lose us. We will be his children, his sheep and his lambs forevermore. May God bless to us these thoughts. So I turn to sing in Psalm number 69, again in the Scottish Psalter, at verse number 6, in the middle of verse 6. It's on page 306. Psalm 69, and these are words which refer to uh, Jesus in John chapter 2 and, and in other parts of the New Testament as well. Psalm 69, in the middle of verse 6. O Lord, the God of Israel, let none who search to make and seek thee be at any time confounded for my sake. And we sing from the middle of verse 6 to the end of the verse marked 11 to God's praise.
Turn now to read the Word of God in the New Testament and in the Gospel of Matthew and in chapter 26. And we're going to have a slightly shortened reading and we're going to read from verse number 57 down to verse 68. Matthew 26 and at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, You will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Amen, this is God's word, and we trust that we bless to us that reading from it. 
We have been following some of the sayings of Jesus as the Son of Man in the Gospel of Matthew. And when we come to this passage, we are coming to the last time that we will hear the voice of Jesus apart from when he goes to the cross. It is certainly the last time that we hear the voice of Jesus speaking as the Son of Man. And the journey that we have taken uh, following the words of Jesus as the Son of Man is a journey that has taken us from the beginning of his ministry in Galilee right up until this time just before he is crucified. And the journey that we have taken, and we have looked at 11 passages that speak to us of the Son of Man, we could think of the journey as these passages being stepping stones, but we would rather see them as steps that enable us to follow the story of Jesus that bring us to the high point of a staircase where he comes uh, to allow Jesus to speak for himself and to make the greatest statement that he has made about himself in this gospel. It is the pinnacle of all that Jesus has said about himself in this gospel. And when we come to this part, we have seen the way in which Judas has agreed to betray Jesus and uh, the story is in kind of suspense waiting for this to happen. And as we read at verse number 47, that's exactly what happened. Judas chose his moment, but it was in actual fact, it was God's moment. Judas chose his moment. Jesus was betrayed. And because of all of that, we come in verse 57 to the trial of the Lord Jesus. And as we read through it, there are witnesses, there's a judge, there's a defendant, there's an interrogation, there's a verdict. It's all a trial scene. And as we think of the trial scene, we understand it to be the first of two trials. Because the Jews had responsibility, that is the Sanhedrin, they had responsibility for religious matters and other the civil matters which weren't of too much importance. But they certainly had the authority when it came to religious matters. And that's where they are sitting here judging Jesus. They are overseeing. They have the responsibility for the religion of the day and for the people of God. The second part of the trial will come under Pilate because only the Romans had the authority to condemn somebody to death. So it's the trial of Jesus, part one. And part one, we have it before the Sanhedrin. And so today, thinking of these words, we're going to think of the Son of Man, the trial and the testimony of Jesus. And we're going to notice, first of all, that there is a charge. We would expect that, after all, it is a trial. And when you read the account, we see the way in which the Sanhedrin are desperately looking for people to come and lay a charge against Jesus. They are struggling to find people. And we, we look forward and, and we think of Pilate and uh, Pilate saying that he finds no fault in this man. They were challenged because it was difficult to find people who were able to make to bring charges that were going to stick and were going to stand in this trial scene. But eventually, we see that they found two. 
in verse number 60. At last two came forward, and being a religious people, the law was important, and only in the mouth of two or three witnesses would a charge stand and could a sentence be passed. So they are following the law rigidly. That's what we would expect of them. They are the religious people. They are the overseers. And observing that, here come two people with the charge. And here is the accusation. In verse 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Was it something that he had not said? Was it a false witness? No, it wasn't. It was something that he had said. And we look at the Gospel of John and we see Jesus going into the temple and they're buying and selling in the temple. And Jesus, because of his love for the temple of God, because of his love for the things of God, he throws them out of the temple because they are made my father's house, a house of trade. And the disciples remembered then that it was said, the seal of your house will consume me. And so Jesus, in his love for God, in his love for the temple of God, drives the Jews out of the temple because they are abusing the holy place of God. And the religious people, of course, are demanding a sign. What sign will you show us that you have the right to do what you're doing? And Jesus makes that statement. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And you can imagine, it took us 46 years to build this temple. And how can you say... But the disciples, John tells us, understood later that he was speaking of the temple of his body. And here is the charge, here is the accusation that he is able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And clearly from the account that we have, they are not thinking of the temple that is before them in Jerusalem. It is the temple of God. And Jesus has told the disciples, they are understanding that Jesus explains himself as the one who is the temple. And in the Old Testament, the temple is crucial for two things. The first of these is that that's where the presence of God is found. Here I will meet with you. If I want to hear what God is saying, if I want to know the presence of God, I come to the tabernacle, I come to the temple. The second thing is that the temple, the the tabernacle is important for sacrifice. It is where atonement is made. It is where the people are reconciled to God. And all that the building stands for is summarized in these two things. And Jesus telling them, I am able to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. He is now saying that the presence of God is with me only. He is now saying that that atonement, reconciliation is through me only. 
Everything that that building is in the wilderness, everything that that building is in Jerusalem, it's now incorporated in me as the Son of Man, as the Son of God. I am able to destroy. And we read in the Gospel of John in chapter 10 that Jesus tells the disciples that he is able to lay down his life. And he is able to take it again. It speaks to us of the way in which Jesus has the authority of the Father. And he has the ability in himself as the Son of God through the Spirit of God. He has the ability himself to lay down his life. And I look back to the temple in Jerusalem destroyed by the enemy because of the sins of the people of God. And I take a stride forward to see Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And the desolation that I see in Jerusalem is only but a a symbol of the desolation I see in the body of the Lord Jesus as he is able to lay down his life for us. When I read in Psalm number 22 that my heart is melted like wax. When I read in the same Psalm that all my bones are out of joint. It is the destroying of, 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 the, of the body of Jesus. It's the desolation into which Jesus has entered as the one who is bearing our sin. And the one who is there because God has sent him to make his soul an offering for sin. And Jesus standing in this courtroom and he hears this accusation and the cross is around the corner. And I wonder what he was thinking, listening to what they were saying, knowing what was going to happen to him. The person who, who had said in the Garden of Gethsemane, This cup, if it is possible, take it away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The Son of God, the Son of Man who understands why he is here. He gives his life for his people. He's the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And he is also the one who is able I am able to lay down. I am able to take it up again. There is a a restoration. There is a resurrection. Able to rebuild it in three days. I wonder what the difference was in the body of Jesus on the morning of the resurrection in comparison to the way he was on the cross. Whatever the difference was then, the difference between what he was on the cross and what he is today is the greatest rebuilding that ever took place. Because the Son of God who was humiliated on the cross at Calvary is the Son of God who is full of glory and radiant in beauty and glory, he is able to rebuild it in three days. And when we see Jesus on the resurrection morning, 
It's the beginning of the new thing. It's the promises of God coming to fulfillment in him. And it is the Jesus who said himself to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. It's the Jesus that Peter refers to the people of God in Second in First Peter chapter 2, that he is a living stone in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you also, as living stones, are built up in him a spiritual house. What is the building that we now see in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Yes, we see himself as the redeemer of his people, as the one who has reconciled us to God. But we also see the people of God. He is the temple. The presence of God we have in him. We have peace with God in him. And in him we are built up as the people of God. The charge. It touched the very core of his mission in the world. His purpose and coming. It summarized everything that he had come to do. How would we expect Jesus to respond? How do we see him responding? Have you no answer to make? Do you want to speak in in your own defense? But Jesus remained silent. He never said a word. His mind was filled with what lay before him. And in a mysterious way, when the charge was laid against him, it brought before him his whole purpose in a vivid way. But he remained silent, showing to us that that he is understanding that he is the servant of God, the servant who and I see at chapter three, 53 in that passage of the suffering of the Son as well as the build-up to that. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before a shearer, she's dumb. But he opened not his mouth. It's the silence of submission. As someone has described it, it's a sovereign silence. It's the silence of submission to the will of God. There's no argument, there's no case to be made against this because this is why he is here. And as we reflect upon the charge brought against him. They came not understanding, raising a truth against him. As the only person in that hall who understood the truth, he submitted to the truth that was brought against him, even although they couldn't understand what they were saying. 
And, and so it can be with ourselves. We can have the very key truths of the gospel in our own minds. And every time we sit under the gospel, we can be in the sense of being at a trial where we are putting Jesus on the witness stand and where we are waiting for him to speak to us and to answer us in accordance with what we have in our minds. And we may have the very knowledge of the truth, but have no understanding of the truth. And so, although we may be asking the right question, we don't understand the words that we are using. We don't see the truth for what it is. The trial and the charge. What is it do you bring to Jesus today? Charging him, asking him to speak to you, to address your situation and where you are. The charge. Secondly, we have the cross-examination. He is going to the cross. And Caiaphas, because Jesus has said nothing, he, in verse number 63, he turns to Jesus and puts Jesus under oath to the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas is frustrated because Jesus is not seeing anything. And he is, in a sense, calling God as witness and placing Jesus under oath to tell them, is he the Christ, the Son of God? And why is the question important? It is because Caiaphas understood two things. And there's a lot of twin things in, in our message today. He understood two things. And the first thing that he understood was that it is the king who's going to build the temple. And we see that in Second Samuel chapter 7. It's the king, the son of David, that will build the temple. And the second key thing is that it is also the son of God who will build the temple. I will be a father to him, says God. And he will be a son to me, the seed of David. The question shows to us that he knew much. He knew all the detail. He knew who it is that will build the temple of God. And how telling that is, that in his position to bring judgment on the Lord Jesus, that they had the accuracy of thought and the knowledge of the word of God that he was able to come better than any lawyer with the key questions that put Jesus on the spot. If you are saying you're going to build the temple in three days, then you must be the anointed one, the son of David, and you must be the son of God. And of course, you didn't believe that. Tell us. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And from that moment, Jesus now has the platform in the witness box 
to make this great statement. From now on, you have said so, he agrees. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus gives this testimony. He makes a proclamation. And he has another two things. The next twin things. And when we look at what Jesus is saying here, he is drawing attention to the fact that there are two judgments in which he is central himself. And the first of these is that he himself will be under the judgment of God. And we shouldn't always think of judgment as something that is negative. The final judgment which will come to the people of God will be judged and they will be invited into the glory of God. Judgment isn't always negative. It's negative elements and positive elements. And Jesus telling us through these words, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power. And it takes us to Psalm 110, which we're going to sing in conclusion. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And when God the Father is saying that to his Son, the Son of Man, he is doing so because he has passed judgment on the work of his Son on the cross at Calvary. The work must be perfect. It must meet certain criteria. All the boxes in that sense have to be ticked and all the work has to be completed with the perfection of someone who is holy, who is without sin himself and who carries out everything in loving obedience to God the Father. And I'm looking for that when I see Jesus on the cross. And all that I see on the cross tells me that that's exactly the kind of person Jesus is. In his love for his Father, he's going to the cross at Calvary, suffering whatever it takes in order to redeem his people. And at the end of the process, when he says to, the, to his Father, Father, into your hands I, I commit my spirit, he is someone who has finished the work bring it to its goal and to its perfection. And when I hear God the Father saying to his son, come and sit at my right hand, the right hand of power, he is inviting him to sit on his throne as his reward for finishing his work and doing it so perfectly and so beautifully. God has judged his son in his work and he has done everything and it is all very good and here they are in the judgment hall and they are passing judgment on Jesus of Nazareth they are charging him with what he has said they are challenging him about who he is they dare to pass judgment on Jesus of Nazareth because they don't understand who he is And they don't understand that the only judgment that he is subject to, ultimately, is the judgment of God the Father who has sent him into the world to become the Lamb of God, to become the Good Shepherd. 
he is the final judge of the Son. And when we read in Psalm number 2 that God has anointed as king on Zion, it is because Jesus has finished the work. God is pleased with it and people can now be saved. And that's the the first element of what we have here and it's the, the key thing in the gospel that we see Jesus going from the humiliation and the abandonment of the cross and the darkness of the tomb to the glory at the right hand of God, coming into the presence of the ancient of days, as we saw in Daniel 7, coming there as the saviour of the world, as the one who can save you and me today, because God has judged his work that it is perfect. It is suited to what God requires. It is suited to your needs and to mine and is therefore able to save us so that none of us is lost. The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power. And secondly, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. His own work is judged by God the Father. But when he comes on the clouds of heaven... He is coming as the one who is going to judge the world. He is going to come in the glory of the the throne of heaven. And, And we see that in Revelation chapter 20 where the great white throne comes down from heaven and where the judge comes to judge the living and the dead and where the books are opened. Uh, and he's going to come with, with all of the knowledge that he has, all of the understanding that he has of everything that people have done. He's going to come in the picture of Daniel, a fiery throne, a picture of the negative side of judgment, that he is going to come to judge the wicked, to judge the chiavises of this world to judge those who are the enemies of God and the enemies of the Lord Jesus. He is coming at last to judge the world. And whilst we rejoice in the judgment of God and the work of his Son and the outcome of that, that people are saved because Jesus sends his Spirit into the world, we accompany that with the fear of his coming judgment. That he will come and judge each and every one of us. And the, the names of those who are not found in the book of life, they will be cast with the devil and held itself into the lake of fire. The cross-examination leads to a testimony of judgment and how ignorant they were in that courtroom to dare to judge the Son of God when the day was coming when he would judge them and they didn't realize it. Heads full of knowledge of the truth 
but no understanding of the word of truth or of the Son of God who came into the world. The charge, the cross-examination, and finally, the condemnation. In a sense, they had made up their minds before the courtroom sat. They were looking to condemn him, and they were going to do that whatever. But here we see that when Caiaphas hears the testimony of the Son of God, of the Lord Jesus, he understands what Jesus is saying and what he is claiming for himself, that he is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of David, that he is the Son of God. And he tears his, his, his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. He has taken to himself things that belong only to God. That's exactly what he had done. But Caiaphas saw that as blasphemy. And he calls the Sanhedrin. And if they were all together, there would have been 70 of them, including Caiaphas. What do you think of all that you have heard concerning Jesus of Nazareth? What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. They were law keepers. The law said that, that anybody who, who blasphemes the name of God in Leviticus 24 shall be put to death. They were law keepers that required two witnesses. They were law keepers that understood what blasphemy was. They understood the law of God. And yet, they condemned the Son of God for blasphemy, condemned him to death. How ironic that here they are as law keepers condemning the one who is fulfilling the law and bringing the, the law to its goal and to its telos, to the place where there is perfect salvation through him. They condemn him. And perhaps today as we close, perhaps today that's part of the prose that goes on in your own mind when, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. In a real way, every time we hear the gospel, we are sitting in judgment on the claims of the gospel about Jesus. We are taking in the evidence. We are processing it. And we are either accepting him or rejecting him. And today it may be the case that in all of your knowledge of the Bible, in all of your law-keeping, that all the knowledge that you have and the, the law-keeping that you have, that they are the very things that are keeping you from putting your trust in the Lord Jesus. And when they condemn him, we see the way in which in these closing verses of this section, they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? He went to the cross as the lamb going to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. And here we see, in conclusion, here we see once more the way in which 
he proves that he is the servant of God. The Jesus who will know the Old Testament better than any of those in front of him will remember the words of Isaiah 50 and at verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or from spitting. The silence of the sufferer, of the servant of God, in his obedience to God, in his readiness to do the will of God and to be the Savior that God has sent him to be. May God help us to embrace him for ourselves, to go through our own process of examining the evidence and by the grace of God and with the help of the Spirit of God able to embrace him at last as our own personal saviour. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we do rejoice in the gospel. We do rejoice in the passion of your son. There are so There is so much of your promises fixed on him and fulfilled in him. All the truths of salvation find their place and their fulfillment in him. Help us, O Lord God, to understand more and more every day of his significance as our saviour and as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and give us grace in our hearts every day to rejoice, to embrace him and uh, to receive daily the grace that will enable us to live for you. Guide us, we pray, and bless our word to us, we ask. Having mercy, for we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing in Psalm 110 and sing Psalms. It's on page 149. And we're going to sing verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to jump to verses 5 and 6. Psalm 110, and is this verse 1 that was referred to or, or signposted at least in what Jesus said in his response to Caiaphas. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your foes a stool on which your feet may stand. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6 to God's praise.
Stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.